This morning I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 107 and verse 43. Today we're going to return to the theme that we took up in a sermon that I preached two weeks ago concerning the providence of God. And in this psalm, the psalmist recites some of the works of God that have been performed in behalf of his people, some of his mighty providences. And at many points in their history, God came to the rescue of his people in a remarkable way. And at other points in their history, out of love for their disobedience, uh, his disobedient children, he uh, chastened them very severely. And after reciting these various providences in verse 43 of this psalm, the psalmist draws this conclusion. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. When our family goes back uh, once every two years or so to Iowa to visit family out there, we usually stay in the farmhouse of my wife's oldest sister. And in order to keep up with my exercise regimen a little bit, I try usually to make some time to go out for a jog. And this usually takes me by some cornfields and takes me by some pastures. And one of the things that sticks out in my mind is the look that the cows give me as I jog by. They look at me with the most expressionless blank stare. And the impression that they give me is that of dumb animals staring at me with this, without a single rational thought about what they're seeing. And with reference to God's providence, sometimes we are like those cows. We look on with, without a single rational thought about what we're seeing. We don't consider. We don't observe. And the psalmist says, whoever is wise will observe these things. And so let us now pray that God will help us to do that very thing as we take this subject up once again this morning. Please unite together with me in prayer. Almighty God, we do that bless you, we do praise you that you indeed are the God that controls all the events of our lives. We thank you that you chasten us when we disobey. We thank you that you provide for us. We thank you that in every way you are the one that is in charge of that which takes place in our lives. We bless you that even all the days have been ordained from the beginning. And now, O oh Father, we do pray that as we consider your providential care, as we think about how you lead us even now through these difficult days that we are in, we pray that your Spirit would now help us to understand these things, enable us to observe, enable us, O oh Lord, to profit from what we see. Grant us your spirit, we do pray, to teach us even now out of your holy word. We pray it all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Throughout the world, the unrenewed heart is pagan in its inclinations. It does not like to retain God in its thoughts. And sometimes it even deliberately tries to banish God from its thoughts about what is going on. Last week, Governor Cuomo was asked during a press briefing why the coronavirus infection rate was slowing down in our state. And he responded, the number's down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. Now, to be clear, he was not asked at that point about God or prayer. He just said those things. Now, acknowledging God's providence has been a common theme throughout our nation's history. 
Sometimes there have been times of solemn prayer and fasting in the midst of a crisis. At other times, there's a day of thanksgiving after a blessing or a deliverance. But today, it's more common for officials to just ignore God. And just, even when they're not asked about it, perhaps even to say something like we heard recently from our governor. In a recent article concerning this trend, John Stone Street observed this. There is a world of difference between leaving God unmentioned and outright denying that he deserves any credit at all for anything, from miraculous intervention to strengthening medical professionals to acknowledging he gave us the minds to develop therapies and technologies. Even more telling, other than a few atheistic amens, Governor Como's comments did not even make much of a stir. Time after time, after some tragedy, some suffering person says after that tragedy, he says, don't offer us your prayers and your thoughts, just do something, as if prayers and thoughts mean nothing. And like that cliche, our governor's comments, even more than open hostility against Christianity, it reveals the secularism that is so embedded now in our own culture. And this isn't the kind of secularism that takes the Bible and the claims of the Bible about truth and about morality head on. But it's the kind of secularism that relegates what God says and what God's word says to the hidden file of personal private thoughts that are irrelevant to public life. And despite being Catholic, the governor seems to believe that we live in a world where at the end of the day, it's our efforts, our knowledge, and our will that will see us through this and any future pandemic. Now, even among those that admit that the Lord lives and rules in the kingdoms of men, even among them, their practical belief, their practical conduct is often the opposite. Perhaps it's that way with you and me sometimes. There are many who profess to be Christians whose plans and fears and hopes could hardly be more secular and atheistic than if they openly disavowed belief in God's providential government. And to deny God's providential rule, this is to deny practically his existence. As William Plumer put it, God reigns is a logical sequence from God is. To deny God's providence is as atheistic as to deny his existence. A God who neither sees, nor hears, nor knows, nor cares, nor helps, nor saves, is a vanity that can never claim homage from an intelligent man. He might soothe the, myth, the mythology of paganism or meet the demands of an infidel heart, but could never command the allegiance or win the confidence of an enlightened and pious man. Now, prior to this pandemic that has come upon us, I've been preaching to you through the book of uh, some introductory sermons to the book of Genesis. And in particular, I've been taking you through some of the erroneous theories about the interpretation of Genesis chapter one. But in the midst of our recent national trial, the likes of which none of us can ever remember, it just didn't seem right to go plowing through those more technical Sunday school-like type of studies. So two weeks ago, we embarked upon a brief series on the providence of God, and we concentrated in our first sermon on the extent of God's providence. And we noted that there are three aspects to his universal rule, 
It includes the entire material universe, the universe of spiritual beings and the universe of material spiritual beings. In other words, the universe of men and women. Now this morning, we're going to begin to look at another aspect of this subject. We want to look at the character of God's providence. And there are seven or eight such characteristics that I want to show you. But this morning, we're only going to take take up the first three. You have an, the outlines of four, but we're only going to be looking at the first three of these characteristics. And the first characteristic that I want to bring to your attention is that God's providence is holy. And because God is holy, at all times, his providence is holy. And here I want you to notice with me what we read again in Psalm 145. In verses 3 through 5, we read, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. And then after speaking about how we will meditate, therefore, on the wonder and the glory of God's works and how these works are described from one generation to another. The psalmist later on in the psalm says, in verse 17, and this is the verse I want you to especially notice, the Lord is righteous, or the Lord is just in all his ways, gracious in all his works. God's providence is holy. It is just. And it is always holy. He never plots mischief. He doesn't send in agents under false pretenses to trick you into telling a lie. But rather than entice sinners to sin, he discourages it. He tells us that he hates it. He loathes it. He's disgusted by it. He speaks of it as a horrible thing. He says an astonishing and a horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And here the worst of it all, and my people love to have it so. Jeremiah chapter 5. God tells us that his anger is aroused by our sins. And furthermore, he warns us of the terrible consequences of those sins. And he informs us that his providence is directed towards the overthrow, the final overthrow of sin. He tells us in every way how much he hates it, how much he's against it, how much he's determined to defeat it. He doesn't do anything to encourage us to sin. Now, even as Christians, we have a hard time, I think, embracing the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell. I think that's one of the hardest things to believe. It's just hard for us to believe that somebody would deserve suffering forever. And why do we question that? Or why do we struggle with that doctrine? Well, it's because we tend to treat sin lightly in our hearts. We don't have the holy aversion to sin that God has. And we find a certain pleasure in our sins. Now, a few months ago, I may have mentioned this in the past to some of you, but a few months ago, our sewer lines got all backed up in our house. And in spite of my efforts to divert it into a bucket, when I removed the clean-out cap from the, from the lines, the sewage just gushed all over a whole set of bookshelves, and all the toys that were on those bookshelves gushed all over the stuff that was around there, all over the floor nearby. 
And so for hours, I had to get down on my hands and knees in the midst of all that stinky muck and mop it up, clean it up, wash it, wash the toys, wash the other items, disinfect them after washing them. And for hours as I was doing all of that, the thought kept on coming back to me that this is really disgusting. And this is the way God must feel about my sin. This is what he says. He says it's disgusting. And even though my thought was an imperfect picture, you see, of how God feels about it, I wish I could say that even from that point on, I never sinned. I was so disgusted with it, I'd never want to do it again. I'd never found any pleasure in it again. But our hearts are not holy like God's heart is. And therefore, we have a difficult time appreciating the holy aversion that God has to our sins. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, to Revelation chapter 15. In Revelation 15, John tells us that he saw another sign in heaven, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And then, the beginning of this chapter, he says he saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast having harps of God. And then they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And notice in the middle of verse 3 and on down through verse 4, notice the words of this song. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. In the sense of perfect holiness, God alone is holy. And his works are holy. All his works are holy. The wrath of God is poured out on sinners because God is holy. The song of Moses that was first sung, you remember, on the banks of the Red Sea after the Israelites were delivered from Pharaoh and his armies. That song, it included these words, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And the heavenly song that here is recorded in Revelation 15, it's not only called the song of Moses because it's like that song of old, but it's the song of the lamb. And usually we think of a little meek lamb that suffers and is cuddly and we can be with and, and we, we could just, it's just a, almost like a pet. Yet in the book of Revelation, it's the lamb that is the one who pours out the wrath of God. And he is holy. And he tasted of that holiness. He drank the wrath of God on the cross. And in the last day, he will be the one that will pour it out on those who cling to their sins to the very end. And so this song reminds us, as it describes the providential dealings of God in all the world, that's what the book of Revelation is about. It reminds us that all of God's ways are holy, just, and true, because he is holy. Now, in a mysterious way that we will never fully understand, God's sovereignty even extends to your sins and to my sins. 
The worst sin ever committed was the crucifixion of the Son of God. And yet Acts 2.23 tells us that Christ was delivered unto death, and here I quote, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And yet in the very same sentence in which Peter says God determined it, God planned it. In that very same sentence, Peter says to the people that did it, the people that crucified the Lord Jesus, him you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And yet concerning this terrible sin, and concerning every other sin, it can never be said that God is the author of that sin. He determined it, but he didn't instigate it. Thomas Watson asks, is it a likely thing that God should make a law against sin and then have a hand in breaking his own law? All the evil that is in every sinful action, it comes from the wickedness of the agents of those sins, you and me and other sinners. It doesn't come from God. The wickedness is not his. Just as the stench of a manure pile, it doesn't proceed from the heat of the sun that shines upon it. It comes from the putrid matter contained in that dunghill. The heat of the sun brings out the stench of the manure, but it's the manure, it's not the heat of the sun that's the cause of that stench. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought out a lot of good from the hearts of many people. It's been an encouraging thing for us to see in special grace and common grace some of the good that God has brought out of this trial from the tireless and courageous work of doctors and nurses to the generosity of chefs making meals for, for, uh, for uh, health care workers, to the tedious labors of factory workers that provide our food, to the truck drivers that take it to our grocery stores, to the young men and women that stock those shelves and the cashiers that take our money to, to get those groceries, to the people that go and take some groceries to a vulnerable person. These things and many more are things that encourage us to see. But this pandemic has also revealed a lot of sin. Andrew Como's statement about the numbers coming down, God did not do that. This reflects the, the atheistic attitude of multitudes. It reflects the thinking, of the wicked thinking of, of this generation. And governors that say that churches need to close down because they're non-essential. Now, it might be all right for them to say there's danger there to be close together. But to give this reason, they're not essential, but to say liquor stores, those are essential. This reveals our priorities. Psalm 10 and verse 4 says about the wicked, all his thoughts are, there is no God. It's not so much that every time he thinks a thought, he verbalizes in his own mind these words, there is no God. It's the practical expression of his thoughts that God is not there. God is banished from his thoughts. Now think about the people that were recently ticketed for attending a drive-in church service while observing social distance guidelines. Their cars six feet apart, their windows rolled up and listening to the sermons on the radio. As John Stone Street observes about these things, long gone 
are the little house on the prairie days where churches were central to life in American communities. When school, community meetings, festivals, and local governments all happened at the church, where sermons were printed in newspapers and pastors were community leaders. But in our day, church is banished from society. It's not allowed to speak to society. And once God's church is banished and once God's law is rejected, is it any wonder that some of our leaders were pushing for more funds to be killing more babies in the midst of this pandemic? Should we be surprised to see and hear so much hate, whether it be in the presidential briefing rooms or whether it be on Twitter or on our newscasts? Hate pours out all over the place. It's a revelation of what's in the heart of man. And dear ones, let's ever remember that the opening up of the floodgates of this kind of wickedness that we have witnessed in recent days, the opening up of these floodgates, this is not due to the providential pandemic that's come upon us. That's not what created the wickedness. COVID-19 is just a providential ray of light. It's like that sunlight that exposes what's already there. It's already there, this manure, in the hearts of men and women. And in all of God's recent providential dealings, let's learn not to charge God with iniquity, but instead to confess that the iniquity is ours. God is holy. His providences are holy. And we are not. And if we as a nation don't confess our sins, pleading for God's forgiveness and for his deliverance from our sins, we've paid a big price to go through this trial. And yet we haven't learned anything. What an expensive lesson that would be. How tragic to have no lasting benefit from this kind of a lesson. The pundits are all talking about that we need to learn the lesson of making sure we have more masks next time. We need to have more ventilators next time. We need to have more tents to set up next time. We need to be earlier in the social distancing. We need to have more tests. But which of them are talking about, we need to learn from this that we need to repent of our sins, the sins that provoke God. God's providence, dear people, is holy. But we don't get the point. Now, by way of practical application, before we move on, and our applications are not going to come at the end, but with each of the points that I'm making. But in connection with the holiness of God's providence, let me also mention this, that we should beware of drawing an excuse for our sins from the providence of God. God's providence is holy. There's nothing in his providence that provides you or me with an excuse to sin. Every sin is an act of rebellion against God, a transgression of his holy law. Every sin is deserving of the outpouring of his wrath and of his curse. No sin that you commit, no transgression, can find any authorization from an infinitely holy God, from his word, from his providence. This God who is of purer eyes than to even behold iniquity without abhorrence and detestation, Don't shift the blame to God. Though your sin 
is included in the permissive decree of God? Yet there's nothing in God's providence that shifts the blame from you to God. Remember the first sin that was ever committed. God created, you remember, the first pair, Adam and Eve. He created the serpent, wiser than all the other beasts of the field. He created the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so after Adam and Eve sinned, you remember what took place? Eve right away tried to shift the blame. She tries to blame the serpent. And then what does Adam do when Adam comes into the picture? He tries to blame Eve. And amazingly, to blame God for giving him Eve. The woman whom you have given me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Now remember this. Whenever you sin, you don't do this out of a holy motivation to glorify God's holiness and punishing sin. That's not your motive. You sin because you find pleasure in sin, because you want to sin. You sin to gratify your own perverse, sinful lusts and inclinations. Do not blame God. God's providence is holy. But now I want you to consider with me a second aspect or characteristic of his providence. God's providence is also just. Now, from God's holiness, justice proceeds from that holiness. Dr. Wood says this, The plan of providence is such that sin will be stigmatized and sinners punished, while holiness will be honored and those who are holy rewarded. Now, perhaps you still have your Bibles open to Revelation 15. Take a look at me again at the words of the song that's there in Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. And notice the inseparable relationship between God's holiness and his justice. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of Saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. You see the connection there. You are just. And why? Because you are holy. And the justice of God's ways, the justice of God's providences, is guaranteed by his holiness. Now, justice is one of the highest attributes that can ever be possessed by a judge. If I'm going to stand before a judge someday, on a human judge, there is nothing that I would want more than to know that this is a just judge. He's not one that gets paid off. He's not one that has prejudices. He's just in his judgments. And one of the highest characteristics of another magistrate or a president or any other person in the, in the government that, that is, is especially important is the attribute of justice. Now, there was an ancient and fundamental principle enshrined in the book of, in the, in the English Constitution. And there was a Latin phrase that translated means this, the king can do no wrong. And this principle, which was handed down from Roman times, it essentially means that the sovereign acts in a representative capacity. 
And what he does in his official capacity, he does as an act of the government. And therefore, he can't be liable for decisions that he makes. In other words, he can't be sued. You see, his mistaken judgment, sometimes judges make a mistake. His mistake might result in a great loss to somebody. It might even result in the loss of somebody's life. But he can't be held personally responsible for that. Otherwise, you see, judges would continually being sued. Every decision they make, somebody doesn't happy with it, so they take them to court. So there was this principle, the king could do no wrong. But unfortunately, throughout history, this principle has been taken to mean to imply that the king or the president or the judge is above the law. But strictly speaking, when applied to human beings, the principle the king can do no wrong, this is fiction. But it is no fiction when it's applied to God. This king can do no wrong. He is just. You remember how Abraham pleaded with the Lord to spare Sodom as he was especially concerned for his, his, his nephew Lot. And he, he thought of maybe the Lot's family and maybe other righteous persons in that day. And he was pleading, Lord, will you destroy the city for the sake of these righteous ones? And in the midst of his argument, he fell back on this argument. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25 Now generally speaking, we don't complain that God has been unjust when we've just received what most people would consider to be a blessing. Now let's say, for instance, you just got a promotion and you therefore have other things that have come into your life as a consequence of that, extra money that's come to you because that promotion now gives you $10,000 more a year in your salary. And would this make you angry against God? Would your wife hear you say, I, I can't believe what just happened to me. This is so unjust. Why would I get this promotion? Why would I get all this money? This is so evil. This is so unjust. You suppose that's what you would, she would hear you say? I don't think so. And you just got an unusually large end of the year Bonus, did you complain of God's injustice? When you just had a healthy baby, did that make you complain? You know where I'm headed. When do we complain? We complain when we think that something is unjust or something is unfair. Something has just happened to us that hurts us. It might be financial hurt. It might be physical hurt or social hurt. Or hurt from somebody you love. Now, one of the older uses of the word evil is the use of the word not to refer necessarily to sins, but to refer to something that hurts us. Now, think with me for a moment about the various kinds of evil that we experience viewed from this standpoint, those things that hurt us. First of all, there are evils that are punitive evils. Evils that punish us. And such evils are the expression of the retributive justice of God against the ungodly. They are the subjects of judgments because of their sins. So there's punitive evil. And then there are evils that are chastisements. These are not punishments 
as they are in the same sense to the ungodly. But they are evils that are inflicted on the people of God for the sake of their instruction and corrections and sanctification. And these evils, they proceed from the love of God. They have the ultimate goal, conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.19, the Lord says to the lukewarm Laodicean church that smugly thinks that everything is well, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, repent. Be, therefore, be zealous and repent. In the Hebrews 12, we read, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? So this kind of evil comes from the love of a father that wants better things for his son, for his daughter. And then there are, in the third place, evils that we might say are evangelistic evils. There are sufferings that are adored by the people of God in connection with furthering the promotion of the gospel to the ends of the earth. You remember how in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul gives us an extensive catalog of the sufferings that he endured for the sake of the gospel. But then fourthly, there are evils that come to us as a vindication. And here I have in mind those kind of evils inflicted on the people of God that don't have their primary aim, chastening for sin. Instead, the reason for these evils are rooted in God's purpose to vindicate the disinterested integrity and piety of his people. And it is this fourth category that the sufferings of Job find their place. And it's this I want you to think about for a moment. Turn with me to the book of Job, to Job chapter 1. These were evils that reflected upon him for the vindication of Job's integrity and for the vindication of the honor of God. Now, no doubt, Job received much instruction, much correction from, the, from the, the trials through which he passed. And even though he was described as a perfect and as an upright man, a man who feared God and shunned evil, Yet he was not sinlessly perfect, and his knowledge of God was not perfectly complete. And at the end of the book, we hear him saying, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. There were some things that through the course of this trial, Job had said that were ill-advised. and He sees the sinfulness of it. He humbles himself under under what has happened and what he sees in God. But that's not the main key to why it is that he was so afflicted. The key to the interpretation of Job's sufferings is, uh, is not, you see, divine chastisement for sin. The key is found in the challenge that Satan makes before God in the unseen realm. This is what, what, what Satan says. He, he says when he comes before the Lord, does Job fear you for nothing? You see, his charge was that Job's piety was motivated by selfish and worldly considerations. He is saying Job's fear, it's motivated by earthly wealth that he gets as a result of being your, your follower. And so Satan argued that 
Job's religion, in other words, it was kind of like an old-fashioned health-wealth gospel. This is, what, this is his religion. He likes to get healthy and, and wealthy by it. He's pious, Satan says, because it's good business to be pious. And so Job's affliction, therefore, it had this purpose in view. The purpose of demonstrating that his integrity was disinterested. In other words, it wasn't interested, it wasn't motivated by any temporal prosperity that would come as a result of it. It was an affliction that elicited the remarkable response that we read in Job chapter 1 and verse 21. We read in that place that Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we read further in chapter 2. We read in verse 3 that the Lord said to Satan, okay, Satan has afflicted him, he's taken away his children, he's taken away his possessions, etc. And now the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Remember how Satan afflicted him with boils from the crown of his head to the, to, to the bottom of his feet. And remember that in spite of this, Job did not sin. And even after his wife says to him, verse 9, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And then here are these remarkable words of assessment. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job's sufferings, I think they forever condemn the rash assumptions that we often make as to why we think God's people suffer, or that person or this person or that one is suffering. And to assume that that child of God is suffering because of some secret wickedness, as you remember Job's friends, they continue to, to hint at, this is to fly in the very face of the words that we just read. It's to make a grievous charge that was made by Job's friends again and again. God was proving Job's integrity and his own integrity as God. In his sufferings, they also warn us against making the rash assumption that Job sometimes falls into later on. The harsher his friends got in their accusations, the more vigorous he got in defending his own integrity. And in one sense, it's a blessing to be having integrity in the midst of a trial. And it was something that Job could plead, but he went too far in defending that integrity. So later on in the book, we find him so defending that integrity that he begins to accuse God. He begins to speak as if God's being unfair, as if God is unjust in what he's doing to him. When we find ourselves going through deep waters, 
It's not uncommon for God's children to begin questioning God's justice. Why is this happening to me? The, the subtle subtext, I don't deserve this. And so therefore, dear ones, let us beware of murmuring and fretting under the dispensations of God's providence. Remember, it's impossible for the judge of all the earth to do wrong. Let us learn to cultivate the disposition Job manifested when he said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's beware of falling into the sin of murmuring and complaining that so characterized the Israelites whenever things were not going well for them, or at least not as well as they would like. You remember how their food starts running out and they say to Moses and Aaron, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Remember how later on they're thirsty. Again, they accuse Moses of bringing them out of, out of Egypt in order to kill them. And time after time, they do the same thing. They complain, they complain, they complain. And I won't go through the whole record of their complaining. It's a pretty awful story. And throughout the sad account, their complaints are usually directed at the Lord's instruments against Moses and against Aaron. But the Lord makes it plain that when they complain against his instruments, the instruments of his providence, by the way, they're complaining against the Lord. He says to Moses on one occasion, their complaint is not against you, it's against me. And whenever we do the same thing, the bottom of our complaints is the assumption that we are not being treated fairly. This is unjust. And our, our complaints, you see, they amount to an accusation against the justice of God. So let us settle it in our hearts that even when we don't know why we're going through such a hard time, let us settle it in our hearts that God is just in whatever has taken place. We may not understand how it's so, but it is so. Our affliction might be like Job's affliction, a means of vindicating the integrity of our commitment to the Lord. It might be a means of proof that we're not believers just because of what we might get out of it. That we hope that maybe if we put some money in the plate, that God's going to give us wealth. Or they might be for the purpose of chastening sometimes, either for our personal sins, or as an expression of God's divine chastening on a whole church or a whole nation for its sins. Or they might come in connection with making us more effective in the spread of the gospel, as it was with Paul, a thorn in the flesh to make him humble. But whatever the case, let us settle it in our hearts. We may not know the whole reason of it all, but this thing should be settled in our hearts. God is just in all his ways. And to help you think about this, let me just mention briefly three considerations that you ought to keep in mind. Very briefly, first of all, remember at such a time when you're tempted to complain that if you were to get what you really deserve, hell and eternal damnation would be what you get. And then remember, secondly, that in spite of the fact that you deserve to go to hell, in spite of the fact that you have no right to demand this or that from God, 
yet you have been blessed with many mercies. It isn't just all difficulty that God has given you. And whatever affliction you're enduring, whatever inconvenience this shutdown is meant for you, there are many blessings that still call for thanksgiving, even in the midst of these trials. It's exceedingly provoking, you see, to God, when instead of thanking God for many blessings, we complain. Yes, the president should have done this or that. Yes, the governor shouldn't have done such and such. Yes, some of these restrictions are too, 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 too heavy. They don't make a lot of sense. Yes, there's, there's a reason why some people in New York maybe should still be stuck down, but, but us up here in upstate, oh yeah, why, why do we, we have to go through this still? The common thread of all these complaints is that they're directed at the leaders that God has put over us. Remember, it's not just pastors, but civil authorities that God has put over us. We're to honor the king. And so let's remember that when we complain against these ones, we are complaining against God. And let's remember that whatever financial hardship that we might be suffering through this time, it is nothing compared to the way in which God has loaded us with blessing above blessing. And then one more thing to remember. Remember that if God gave you everything you wanted, it has the potential of destroying you rather than blessing you in the end. For years, perhaps, you've been planning a new kitchen. And now this is just shut down those plans. You don't want to bring people in the house to do the job. Your savings now has to be spent on, on just paying your bills instead of paying for a kitchen. And it, it's a great disappointment. And you are deprived, you see. You feel, you feel the pain, perhaps, in some way or another. Although there are a lot of people in the world that would say, I wish that was my problem, just wanting a new kitchen. One of our president's main boasts is the economy that he claims that he created. And although there are many things that he has done that we're thankful for, he didn't create this economy. God did it. He doesn't deserve all the credit for what is done. God does. And we have been enjoying some of the most prosperous years that we can remember. But as Psalm 73 teaches us, those who are at ease, those who increase in riches, God sets in slippery places and he casts them down to destruction. In a moment, they are brought to desolation. So settle it in your heart that God's providence is just. But now, in the third place, I want you to consider with me, and this is a brighter part of the theme, God's providence is good. And here I want you to turn with me to Psalm 145. And as we read earlier in this psalm, in verses 4 and 5, the psalmist speaks of the way in which one generation praises God's works to another. He speaks of his own determination to meditate on God's wondrous works. It's a psalm. The whole psalm is really about God's providential dealings. And a few minutes ago, we, we noted what verse 17 says about the righteousness and justice of God's providential works. But this psalm says even more. It's even more emphatic about the goodness of God's providence. Notice what we read in Psalm 145 and verse 7. 
as they recite from one generation to another the works of the Lord, what do they recite? Verse 7, they shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. It's a psalm about God's goodness to all of creation and especially to his people. And when we consider the tender care with which God provides for all of his creatures, and especially those creatures made in the image of God, we are constrained to ask when we think about that, that goodness to, to undeserving sinners, to, to creatures made in his image that, that defied his word. We're constrained to say, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him, as, we, as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 8. And especially when we remember that we are a rebellious, fallen nation, fallen race. What God does for us, it's amazing. Why did you deserve to be born here in America rather than in some hovel there in, in Calcutta, in the slums, in a place where you never would hear the gospel? Why, why did God bless you with such goodness? God's goodness is amazing. Now, Jesus uses the example, you remember, of our Heavenly Father to teach us to love even our enemies. He says, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And he says that you may, this is the reason, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so we read in Matthew 5. And in the same Sermon on the Mount, in order to convince his disciples that it's foolish to worry over what they're going to eat or what, what they're going to drink or what they're going to wear, Jesus reminds them that their heavenly Father feeds the birds. And they don't sow, they don't plant seeds, they don't reap, they don't store up what they've gotten in barns. And then after speaking about how the birds are fed in spite of all their lack of planting, Jesus then asks his disciples, are you not of more value than they? And then he, he gives the same basic lesson in, in Matthew chapter 10. He seeks to convince them not to be afraid of those that are persecuting them or will persecute, persecute them, even those that threaten to, to put them to death. And he says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Matthew 10, verses 29 and 30. God's goodness, God's love and care, it extends to the details of our lives. It extends to the hairs of our head, to the food that we eat, now, after you wash your face and you brush or you comb your hair, you just wipe the splatter off the sink and you wipe also the hairs that fell upon the sink as you combed your hair and you brushed it, you don't think anything of it when you have to mop up two hairs. 
You don't say, well, two hairs. That must be, uh, two, two every day, that must be uh, over 700 a year. And that's, that's I'm going to lose almost a thousand hairs this year. And, and I don't know if I'm going to get any of those hairs back. And what's going to happen to me? You don't go through all that, that, that you distress. You don't think anything of it. You just wipe those hairs off and you throw it in the, in the, in the trash. And yet God numbers those hairs. He noticed those two hairs. He remembers every sparrow. And do you not think that he's able to protect you from the coronavirus? Do you not think that as long as he wants you here upon earth, that he's able to provide another job if this pandemic has left you unemployed? He's able to care for you just as much now as he was last year. And as we look back over our lives, we will marvel over the way that this or that seemingly insignificant event was a pivotal moment in our life. And in the Father's care for us. You remember how later on Joseph could look back and he could see the picture more clearly. He could see those trivial moments that he maybe thought were, were awful at the time. How his brothers were jealous over that many-colored coat of uh, a co coat that his father had given him. And then about how those Midianites were just coming by just at the moment that he was down in the pit. And then how they bought him and how they sold him to Potiphar. And then how what would happen in Potiphar's house would get him in jail. And then about the dreams that he would interpret while he's in jail. And all of these things he might have thought, well, these are just little things along the way. And I don't know what's happening here in my life. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And yet when it's all over, he can see the intricate tapestry God was weaving. How every part was an intricate part of God's plan. Now Moses, he could look back. What a strange idea came into his mother's mind to, to, to take a little basket and make it waterproof and stick it in among the bulrushes. And somehow that's supposed to protect a little baby. That's a, I don't think that most of us would have thought of that solution. And yet, just after she does this, lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter happens to come and it's not to any spot along the Nile River, but to that particular spot. And she hears that at that moment, a little cry from that little basket. And through that, God raised up a man who was trained in Pharaoh's court and who would be especially equipped to lead his people. And you remember how in Esther's day, the seemingly insignificant fact of the King's insomnia one night, and how to put him to sleep, he would have he had tried to have some people read some boring stuff to him, the chronicles of the events of the of the king, and how the deliverance of God's people hinged on that little event. And so it is that events that at the time they might seem dark, they might seem devastating, like being sold as a slave, that's not too pleasant. These, let's remember, are not a contradiction of the goodness of God, especially to his people. And think of the, the darkest day of Mary's life, Mary, the mother of Jesus. If Mary could have seen her future self, if she could have seen in advance, sobbing uncontrollably at the foot of a cross, if she could have seen what was about to happen? 
Would she have at that moment when the announcement was made to her, would she have so confidently sung about God bringing down the mighty and God exalting the humble and God scattering the proud? If she could see it all in advance, what was she was going to go through? You think she would have had that song of praise? When it came to that dark Friday, she could see nothing at that moment but darkness and devastation. Her heart was pierced through. And at that moment, no doubt, she might have preferred to skip that early angelic visit and the announcement that she had been chosen to carry in her womb the very Son of God. She could say, well, I, I, I could have just skipped that. They'd have to go through this. Better to forego the wonder and joy of that birth if it all was going to lead to seeing her dear son writhing in agony and pain as he's scourged, as he's nailed to a tree, as he hangs there for hours writhing in pain. You too, you might prefer to, to say, well, I could skip this pandemic. That would be something I'd like to skip. And you see and you hear the way politicians and how the news outlets are tearing at each other with their venomous hate. You might be wondering if instead of the economy taking off like a rocket, like our president says, it instead gets mired down in some deep depression. And the more you hear of the dark tactics that have been employed by our premier intelligent agency for, the, for political reasons, and you see these terrible things that are going on in our country, Mingled fear and anger comes into your heart about the people that are doing these things. You tremble to think what's going to happen to our country if certain ones gain power. And you see this country convulsed with this pandemic and instead of being broken over its sin, even worse manifestations of sin are breaking out. And as you see and as you hear these things, dear people, you're tempted to say with the wicked, as the wicked say in Psalm 4, who is going to show us any good? What good can come out of this? And instinctively, and this is a wonderful thing, the psalmist who brought, penned that psalm, Psalm 4, he turns away from the taunts of the wicked. Who's going to show you any good? And instead, he lifts up his heart in prayer. And he says, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. And then confident that in the end, God's favor is going to bring blessing out of the trial. He adds, by way of anticipation, you have put gladness in my heart more than in the season of their grain and their wine increased. He's already seeing by faith the blessing of God that's going to come out of the, the deep trial. And so with joy, he stops fretting and he rests in God's care and God's, and God's goodness. And he says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. In the midst of the 1665 plague in London, and the vicinity of London, God raised up a good number of Puritan preachers that heralded forth his word. And we have some of their sermons still. They gained much from the experience and they held firm to God's word and they proclaimed that word faithfully. Let's pray that God will do the same thing again, that, that many will be raised up to, to sound an alarm, to sound God's truth and to call people to repentance and to call them to faith in the Lord Jesus. 
Let's pray that people will listen to these advertisements that, that Franklin Graham is giving even on the, on the television. Let's, let's pray that there be some tenderness, that some people will repent at least in our land. Let's pray that God will see his church through and bring his church through sanctified and more equipped to do the master's will. Under the current plague, the hearts of men will either be softened or they will be hardened. That's going to happen one way or the other. In a lot of cases, it seems like the hardening is happening. Hardening took place with the plagues in the book of Revelation. And of course, our prayer is for the softening and not the hardening of men's hearts. But even if there is the response of our nation to this current plague, and even though that response is just like the response of the wicked in the book of Revelation, who harden themselves further under God's plagues and under God's judgments and displeasure, even if that happens, dear people, know this. This does not take away from the goodness of God in the midst of these events. And know this, the goodness of God will prevail in the end. It will prevail in the hearts of his people during this present age. And it will prevail in the new heavens and the new earth, wherein righteousness will dwell forever. And whether we see a great awakening or whether we don't, we can have this settled in our hearts that God's goodness will be manifested and it will be declared to the ends of the earth. And even now we can entrust our care into the hand of a good God. And if we're sick, if we are poor, if we are bereaved, how delightful it is to know in these days that it's the Lord and it's not Satan. It's the Lord and not man. It's the Lord, a friend and not an enemy. It is a tender father and not a capricious master. It is this one who ordains what has come upon us and what is ahead for us. And so David was wise when he said, let me fall into the hand of the Lord and not into the hand of man. Remember how three options were given. Either run from your enemies or a famine or a plague. And he says, I want you to, you to make the choice, Lord, and I'd rather you be the one that takes our lives. Because he knew that God's, God was good. Luther said, smite, Lord, for you love me. And every child of God can say the same thing. And knowing the goodness and knowing the kindness of the one that providentially directs our affairs in these days, this is a wonderful cure for our anxiety. The Lord Jesus says to us, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Let's learn to trust God. He's a good God. It's a good God that guides and superintends the events of your life. It's a good God that's committed to your care. And this same God that made the ravens uh, to feed Elijah, his servant, and those ravens became his servants, as it were. This same God that brought food in that way to Elijah every day, he will feed you. As long as he has work for you to do still on earth, he will also protect you from the invisible pestilence that silently is making its way from person to person 
throughout the land. When it was John Bunyan's turn to stand sentinel at the siege of Nottingham back in the 1600s, as he was going forth to take his turn as a sentinel, another man offered to take his place. That man that night was shot and killed, and Bunyan was spared. And we wouldn't have Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress if it hadn't been for that providential arrangement of that man to offer that night to take Bunyan's place. The Lord wanted him to write that immortal book, Pilgrim's Progress, and so he providentially arranged for his safety. And this God will keep you safe as long as he wants you here. His unceasing care for us, this should take away our anxiety. And also, by way of concluding application, let me say it should teach us to be thankful. Psalm 107 is a recitation of the many and varied trials from which the Lord delivers his people. There's a stanza about being delivered from hunger and thirst, a stanza about being delivered from prison chains, another from deadly sickness, and another from the stormy sea. And after each stanza, there is a repeated refrain. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. It's this attribute of God's goodness in the midst of their trials. This is fuel to be fuel for their thanks. It's God's providence that sews our clothes. clothes. It's God's providence that prepares a table for us in the wilderness. We are fed every day from the food pantry of God's providence. And if we're spared from the ravages of COVID-19, it's not as, as the governor put it, we did it. That's not why. But rather, contrary, you see, to this arrogant declaration, it's God that did it. God spared us. God's goodness kept us alive. Give God thanks if that takes place with you and your family members. And consider the work of God in your behalf. Don't just think about the trials. Think about all the blessings as well. Don't be like those cows that I talked about at the beginning of this sermon that just give us a blank stare, that doesn't observe God's providence and doesn't think about God's providence. But join the psalmist and say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And later on, after this trial is over, don't forget what God did. Don't be like the ungrateful Israelites whom the psalmist said of them, they soon forgot his works. Psalm 106. All around us are people that are complaining about this or that, about the president or about the governor or what they did or didn't do. And dear ones, let's be careful with our mouths in these days. It's not wrong for us to discuss the rightness or wrongness of certain things, but we shouldn't have the complaining attitude that complains about the leaders God has given us, full of murmuring and discontent like the Israelites. Our mouths instead should be filled with thanksgiving. Even during this trial, dear people, let us count our many blessings. Let us name them one by one. And it will surprise us what the Lord has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We bless you for 
your goodness to undeserving people. You have been good to us as individuals. You've been good to us as a church. You've been good to us as a nation. And yet we have returned for your goodness, sin, and rebellion. Teach us, O Lord, in these days to treasure your goodness in spite of our wickedness. And teach us not to trifle with you and your purposes, your providences. Help us to learn, O Lord, looking back upon what has happened, and even now to learn while, while we're going through these times, that in your providence all that you do is holy and just and good. And all of it will someday redound unto your glory. All of it will be fuel for eternal praise. Help us, O Lord, to look forward to that day. Help us, O Lord, to live as those that know these things and consider these things and observe these things. Enable us, O Lord, to be those that give you thanks and give you praise in the midst of the trials that you bring upon us. Forgive us, O Lord, for those times when we have not done this and enable us more and more to be like your own blessed and dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from whose lips never such a complaint ever, ever came. A Son that always viewed you as being just and holy and good in all of your dealings. Make us like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Work in the hearts of those that are lost and dead in their sins, we do pray, even through these trials, to bring them to, to see their, their need for to have a, a right relationship with you, the holy and just and good God that you are. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen.